I'm here with Brian. To, we're going to talk about uh, his recent trip to the AUA. A couple of things before we start. You'll notice we haven't got a guest, which is unusual. So we're going to try and keep the arguing to a minimum, Brian, if we can, <laughs> firstly. And by the way, this isn't because a guest hasn't turned up, which I wouldn't I'd expect to happen more than it does. Uh, just because, uh, why haven't we got a guest, Brian? Is there an, I'm not sure why. But anyway, we're going to keep going. <laughs> Number one. Number two is, um, during the, we, we, I've had a lot of feedback from different, well, not a lot, I've had a little bit of feedback from different people um, about the podcast saying, you know, I was really upset about this and, and maybe you, we should, act. I'd quite, if we could, you know, if you put comments on our youramigos.org website about, you know, you being really unhappy about various bits of the podcast. Or, or happy. Or, or happy about that. Yeah, or happy or disagree. I mean, disagreement would be good. That's yeah. our, that's our, our, our modus for random. If, if that's the case, then please do jump on the website and uh, we'll, of course, introduce it to our, our uh, at the beginning of our podcast, you yeah, know, talking you, about previous meetings and we'll have a little you, bit of debate about that. Click on the talk to us button at the top of youramigos.org. It'll take you somewhere. You can just put in a comment, you know, mention what podcast it is. And uh, that would be great if people would do that. I mean, even if we got one comment, it'd be good, wouldn't it, Brian? <laughs> my mom commented she loves the podcast yeah i think we did i wrote something anonymously i pretended it was from someone else <laughs> but yeah okay let's start right. okay you went to the aua bro let's start with the most important question most important. what does aua stand for <laughs> american urologic association annual Correct. meeting was in chicago this year last weekend fabulous and um brian why don't you run us through some of the prostate data you saw yeah, so there were a few interesting things. There was an update on the Presto study. So Presto was a, a randomized phase two. We actually did a podcast, I believe, with Rahul Agarwal. I think it was from ASCO GU. Maybe, maybe it was ESMO, actually, when it was first presented. This is a... He did a great a, job. Randomized phase two in patients who are status post-definitive local therapy. They have biochemical relapse and a PSA doubling time less than nine months. And this was a three-arm study where they looked at uh, LHRH alone, LHRH plus apalutamide, or LHRH plus apalutamide plus abiraterone. Wow. So basically hormones for everybody and then adding in one or two novel hormonal agents. They did thousand, that for a thousand patients, Neil Shaw presented. No, 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 no. That's oh. Embark. Oh, this right. Okay, Presto. sorry. Yep. Right, right. This, we're going to get to Embark in a second. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. The, the prelude to that. It's a smaller version of that. Yeah. This was, I don't remember the numbers, but it's in the randomized phase two size. And they just looked at PSA progression and the addition of apalutamide uh, delayed PSA progression. The hazard ratio was 0.59. In the arm adding Abby as well, it didn't look like there was additional benefit. That hazard ratio was 0.53. So I think it's, it was the first data in this setting that was saying de-intensifying hormone therapy in this setting can delay PSA progression. They did not present metastasis-free survival data, which is important, which we'll get to in Embark. Uh, and again, they just treated for a year. Um, so again, it's, it's preliminary. It was just an update. And I think it really, it reinforces what we really need to talk about, which is the Embark study. So Embark, uh, Neil Shore presented it, as you mentioned, I think it was really the highlight of AUA, at least from an oncology standpoint. This was a, a thousand patient phase three study, again, in that biochemical relapse population. So status post definitive local therapy, PSA doubling time, less than nine months without metastases on conventional imaging. They did not do PSMA paths, just given the study actually accrued. I think Neil mentioned like, you know, it, it over five years, it was, it's been a while in the making, right? Cause these endpoints in these patients are, are long, you know, are distant, which is a good thing. And they randomized patients to uh, Lupron monotherapy, Lupron plus enzalutamide or enzalutamide monotherapy. So all hormones, but different flavors. 
And they've looked at their primary endpoint was metastasis free survival. Um, and the MFS hazard ratio for the combo of ADT ends of versus ADT and ADT mono would be considered the, the standard was 0.42. So a real, you know, tremendous delay in benefit in metastasis free survival. The OS hazard ratio was 0.59, but was not significant yet just based on number of events. Um, so I think these data really change, you know, change practice, right? We can argue about when do you institute hormone therapy in this population of patients and with doubling time, et cetera, et cetera. And now with PSMA PET, it's going to have some different implications. It might be a little different, uh, a lower risk, right? If you, if you filter out those patients who are PSMA PET positive, um, but I think this will impact practice. And how's it going to affect your practice, Brian? Well, I think, I mean, if I was treating, you know, rising PSA with, with hormones, I'd, I'd give them doublet therapy, right? I'd give them ADT ENSA. Um, they, they stop. They also, I think importantly, uh, for patients with a PSA uh, less, I think it's less than 0.2 at week 36 or nine months, they stopped all therapy and then instituted again upon PSA rise. So because these patients are going to be on hormone therapy for years and years, they instituted an intermittent strategy. They didn't present a lot of data on that. The only numbers I saw was that the median duration of treatment suspension in the combo arm was like 20 months. So it's, it's substantial. Right, because these men take a while to recover their testosterones, and then and then for the PSA to go back up, et cetera. So I think we need to see sort of longer follow up data on that. But but um, you know, from a, to- a long term tolerability standpoint, that strategy seems wise to me. And essentially, one gets the impression with this and some of the other earlier data, even from the Stampede trial and other studies, some of the early data, it looks like the intervention of drugs like Enzo or Abby, darolutamide. They all seem to be associated with with this this benefit, um, but what about overall survival? So they, again, the hazard ratio was zero point five nine, but it was not significant. You know, the p value was 0.014, but but by the statistical plan, you know, it didn't it didn't meet the threshold. And because patients were stopping early, was there sort of? I guess the toxicity signal wasn't too bad. Is that fair? Yeah, I didn't. Uh, so treatment related AEs. Um, 18% grade three in the combo versus nine in ADT mono. So about a doubling, you know, um, and, and the toxicity that you expect would expect from adding Enza. So I think, you know, the expected toxicity, I guess you could decide, you know, whether that's worth it to me. It seemed like, yeah, it's doubling, but it's still a relatively low rate, you know, compared to what we do in other settings. It seemed, seemed reasonable tox to me. And what was the medium follow-up and how many deaths have there actually been in this trial from prostate cancer? Um, I mean, what's the delta in death? I know it's not mature, but, you know, is it five-year follow-up with 25 versus 50 it's deaths in a thousand patients? I didn't write down, like, the, the number of deaths. I don't, I don't remember the percent of patients with an event. Because a hazard ratio of 0.5 is sort of cool, but if it's eight versus four deaths, that's... No, 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 it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't that low. The median follow-up was five years, so pretty reasonable. But again, this yes. is a patient population that obviously is going to live for a long time, right? Because they have just just rising PSA, no meths. And they're going to have that toxicity for a long time as well, although not necessarily because some of them are stopping early. Is that fair? Yeah, correct. Right. Every, everyone who had a PSA decline that I mentioned would stop. And then there were certain parameters around restarting. So yes, they're going to have toxicity, but they're also going to get big gaps, you know, so where they're off drug. It sounds drugs. like you genuinely went to that I thought you genuinely went to that meeting, Brian. I did actually yeah. go. Yes. <laughs> so, yes, I have some pictures of me there. So. Yeah, because we're going to have to start getting some uh, photographic evidence, I think, and of uh, the, the presence at these meetings the other in the thing future. Because it's so all very vague. <laughs> what was interesting is, you know, this enzalutamide monotherapy arm, right? So without ADT, yes. you know, but with enzamono, 
just looking at the numbers, if you look at that versus ADT, so versus Lupron, the, the MFS hazard ratio is 0.63. So that was significant with just Enza alone. And obviously those men's testosterones would not be castrate. So he, Neil didn't talk about that too much, but that would be a question that I might have, you know, for him and others, you know, in this space is what about Enza mono, you know, and they didn't compare to my knowledge, the ADT Enza versus Enza. I didn't see comparisons for that probably, you know, intentionally. Um, but is there a role for Enza mono in those men who don't want to be castrated and deal with those side effects? Because there's still benefit versus ADT, you know. And ultimately, OS is going to be really important for that as well, isn't it? I think so. I think MFS is an accepted endpoint, you know, and plus that hazard ratio is 0.42. So it's not like it's marginal benefit, right? Yeah, but, but when you compare Enza plus Enza plus LHRH, you know, you would want to see a big difference between those two to justify a lifetime or particularly to the first period of LHRH agonists. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. So again, even though there's there's five... I know the trials are designed that way in bits and pieces, but we haven't really explored these single agents particularly aggressively in these sure. trials. And we're going, you know, more and more into triplet type therapy. You know, the Vogue at the moment appears to be more, not less. And um, uh, and clearly, you know, there isn't a role. I'm guessing there's no role for triplet therapy here. We've had that debate with various people on the on, on the uh, on the podcast who haven't, uh, who probably were invited to this call, but decided not to turn up. <laughs> if I, um, anyway, look, let's move on. Prostate cancer, number two, Brian. Terrific. What were the, what's your second one? Uh, anyway, this year. Um, well, no, I think we were going to talk about bladder. So Presto and Embark were the two prostate, you know, sort of the, the smaller biochemical relapse and then Embark, which was the big, the big data. Um, I think we should talk about the TAR 200, the Sunrise 1. Now, I know a little bit about that. But I have to say, I wasn't in Chicago at the meeting. Of course, you were. So you'll have to correct me if I get any of this wrong, Brian. And and Sia presented it. And actually, you'll remember that we did a podcast with Sia just also a couple of weeks ago um, on some earlier data. And this is the first um, prospective kind of robust single arm data that we've seen. And the principle of TAR 200, um, which some people call the pretzel, because that's what it actually looks like, and it does genuinely look like a pretzel, <laughs> is it is associated with slow release or sustained release in the bladder. So basically, it put it's a um, a device that can be put into the bladder, and then it curls up into something that looks like a pretzel. It means you can't pee it out, and then it slowly releases. Um, Gems. The, uh, the gemcitabine in this case, yeah. but it can use other drugs as well. And Sia talked about that previously. And if you want to know more detail about the uh, about the product, Sia went into a lot of detail around exactly the duration of sustained release, etc. Um, however, you know, looking at the uh, at, at these data, you can see actually there has been um, um, it's released over a period of about a week, which I think is cool. And of course, it needs to be put back in the bladder from time to time, which I think is relevant. Every two weeks, yeah. But uh, and that's not insignificant. But the but the key to this, which is um, is important, is we've gone into a unified population. So it's that classic um, CIS um, pre BCG refractory population, mm -hmm. and we've done podcasts on that with Style Fifteen. And I thought that actually had a, uh, a nice introduction about the the state of play in this area and the CR. It's called CR rate. And I think it is CR because everyone we speak to says, you know, BCG is left behind and the drug will induce CR. There's always random biopsies. And are you really biopsying all the areas of cancer and where and how accurate this CR endpoint is and whether 
biopsy and some trials do a biopsy at 12 months and some trials do a biopsy at six months Mm -hmm. and some trials don't do a biopsy at all they only go after those areas that appear to be abnormal so there's a bit of heterogeneity in this and when we benchmark this off other drugs pembrolizumab classic you know drug that's approved in this setting a bit controversial has a 41 percent um cr rate at um three months um and 19 percent cr rate at 12 months and this drug you know it's only 22 patients it's a classic population it's a subset analysis from sunrise one which is a randomized phase two trial of what's going to be 200 patients and in this trial you either get um tar 200 plus citrilamab tar 200 alone or citrilamab which is a pd1 inhibitor alone so it's a combination looking for component parts i think it's a nice study as you know the pembrolizumab study had 100 patients in it um and so uh it's sort of this is is is, is red that could ultimately be relatively robust this is a, what appears to be quite an interim analysis because we've only got 25 patients for tar 200 25 patients for citrilamab um Right, and they didn't. They did not report on the combo arm. Just to be clear, they didn't. Two thirds of patients CIS only. Two, a third CIS and papillary disease. And uh, um, we actually, what they showed in these twenty-two patients was a seventy-three percent CR rate um, at six months, and a forty. That's for the TAR two hundred, and that was forty percent for citrilamab alone. Um, you know. I think the numbers are too small to make any form of cross trial comparison, but if clearly the, but let's do it anyway. (laughs) Well, yeah, we can, or we can avoid it. I think it's fair to say that this is as promising as anything else. I think the IL-15 looks super promising too. And I I think that uh, this is that you've, you know, it turn out in the end that systemic therapy with immune checkpoint inhibition as a single agent may not necessarily be the way forward in this in this group of patients and although okay and of course there are big studies like 676 and other studies coming up it looks like the field or the urology field has moved on with either the super agonist intravesicle or indeed with this type device slow release device it's worthwhile saying as well, the swim lane plots look at these uh, yeah. ongoing responses. I think the on swim lane plot is maybe the most impressive of, of, of the data. And the adverse event profile is actually really small um, because it's you know, slow release gem cycle in the bladder. And there's nothing particularly striking there. In fact, the citrilamab looks really well tolerated as well for what it's worth. And so um, I think when you pull this together, I think they were right to conclude it was promising and well-tolerated, really competitive. Uh, And it's important. And again, Sia talked about this a couple of weeks ago. There's sunrise two, there's sunrise three, there's sunrise Mm -hmm. four. Um, There's new uh, treatments going into the pretzel. And this is a whole new um, chapter of early urethelial cancer, which may turn out other agents being developed to be really important. So I thought, uh, uh, I thought that was really um, exciting and, uh, and, I think you know, the, the tolerability is better. I don't know the numbers for BCG. I just know it, hearing it from patients when they have to get it, and I see them down the road, that it's really not pleasant, you know, to just have the, the drug sort of washing around your bladder, whereas this is obviously a different kind of delivery system. So I think, you know, my understanding from a patient standpoint is that it's it's much more tolerated, even though, you know, you have to obviously get that pretzel changed out every three weeks. So there is a quite obviously a Cisco involved. Yeah, so... Um, uh... 
I've just remembered, by the way, what the feedback was I got from our podcasts. <laughs> should, I, should I give that now or should I do that at the end? Uh, I don't. Do it at the end. Do it at the end. Okay. So, Brian, there were other bladder presentations. You were there too. So there the sunrise, a... this sunrise program was really exciting. I think it's cool. You know, historically, AUA and EAU, in my experience, haven't presented that much new data, new big randomized trials, yeah. um, unlike ASCO and ESMO, or well, certainly not oncology trials. I'm sure they're doing lots of urology and devices trials. And what do you feel about this, you know, this broader broadcasting and new data in different environments? I mean, I, I think it's good, right? A lot of it, as you know, just depends on the timing of the data cuts, you know, and things like this. Embark and the rising PSA, these are patients that urologists see, you know, they're yeah. following them after surgery, yeah. et cetera. So I think it's... Yeah, so these are urology type trials. I agree. I agree. Um, yeah. What else did you, what else did you see? So the only other, there's a couple bladder, Keynote uh, 57, Cohort B, the, the papillary cohort that we uh, did a podcast with Andre Necki about, I believe, uh, yes. for ASCO GU. Yes, we did. They just, they reported, the only bit of data I got from that, there were um, 36 patients who went to radical cystectomy after Pembro. 11% of them had muscle invasive disease. So the 12-month the DFS for the cohort, cohort was 42%, which I think is similar to what they reported before. It was in the 40s. But they specifically reported on this cohort that ultimately obviously failed Pembro and then went to radical cystectomy with a a relatively low risk of muscle invasive disease. And that would be the risk, of course, right? As you're, you're delaying radical cystectomy, you're increasing the chance of significant progression into the muscle and beyond. Well, I wonder so, what proportion of these patients are CTDNA positive, these non-muscle invasive patients. Because, you know, one of the questions in kidney cancer, you have small renal mass and, you know, what are we doing with that? And how many patients' lives are we saving by doing all these operations? And as we get better and better at the operations, they're easy to do. But are we saving many lives? Question one. In prostate cancer, we've been talking about early prostate cancer. And you know, we actually haven't done a podcast yet. We should do it on that um, study, the updated um, um, screening study of prostatectomy versus observation. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the role. And I think in bladder cancer, we've got the same issue. We've got non-muscle invasive urothelial cancer. I wonder how many, because these are the worst of the worst normal so if there's bcg refractory no other treatment refusing cystectomy somehow mm. they're going on and having cystectomy and you know the muscle invade even in for those patients that end up having a cystectomy the proportion that have muscle invasive disease is actually pretty small mm-hmm. and we have to i think at some point put into context the the risk benefit ratio of all of this and i'm not sure i'm not sure how much we've done with that maybe we should get someone on on the on uh, and have a discussion about about risk early risk uh, we could have uh, maybe a I panel think, discussion with three urologists that might be nice yeah i th- yeah we could do it at our meeting as well but i i think we're going to look back on the days of doing a lot of cystectomies both in this non-muscle you know or earlier stage and also even muscle invasive as as over treatment right and we talked to yes. Mikowski about that his data with the clinical cr and patients you know being able to to evade cystectomy so i think you know in five ten years we're going to look back and be doing a whole lot less cystectomies because we're going to have more effective drugs to control this disease, you know, without cystectomies. Now, I know you're doing this on purpose and I appreciate it, but I'm aware that there was adjuvant Pembro data presented and we still haven't seen the OS. Is that correct? Adjuvant Nevo. Adjuvant, adjuvant Nevo. Nevo. Sorry, sorry, apologies. Adjuvant Nevo presented and bladder yeah, cancer. Matt presented the adjuvant Nevo from Checkmate 274. He presented the, the, the very large subset of patients who had bladder disease, so not basically removing the upper tract. Right. disease i think there was 280 per arm and in the whole trial there was what three three something so, and the numbers not go ahead so the one of the things about early or sorry upper tract disease within the context of both 274 and 010 the two adjuvant trials 
is the upper track patients um, did not appear to have a benefit in the subset analysis with all the caveats of forest right. spot analysis. And we know that the upper track patients have higher luminal one disease. Um, Josh Meats talked a bit about it in um, a podcast. I think we're, we're, we're releasing in the near future. And I think that group also seems to have lower TMB, lower pd one expression. And there's a question about how active immune checkpoint inhibition is in upper tract urothelial cancer. And, um, and so by removing those patients, you are going to inevitably going to enrich your hazard ratios. I think, you know, if I was the EMA, instead of doing a pdl one positive biomarker label, which I'm not convinced about, as you know, I'm very anxious about the biomarker. I think it might've been better just to use a, um, better, better just to go say, listen, we're going to give a bladder label. That's why, how I would have looked at this, because it's clear that from my perspective, the upper track population might be problematic. And I think the other piece that's worthwhile mentioning is all of these neoadjuvant trials that are coming out. And if you look on clinicaltrials.gov, it looks like Energize, which is chemo plus Nevo, and uh, Niagara, which is chemo plus um, Duvalimab versus neoadjuvant chemo followed by cystectomy, and then adjuvant Nevo or Derva. Those mm-hmm. perioptive trials are only bladder trials. They're not, um, they exclude that upper tract population. And so, you know, we might be lucky and, and that might help those trials come home. So I think the, I, I think Matt's presentation from that perspective is important to highlight to people that a lot of this benefits are, you know, I'm obviously being a bit flippant about the overall survival signal, but I think there are subset analyses which are important. And I think this is one of them. Well, I guess the analogy would be in, in renal cancer is mixing clear cell and non-clear cell and just doing a trial, right? They're different biologies. Right. They happen to occur in the same organ and this happens to occur in the same, you know, organ tract, so to yeah, speak. I'm going to push back on you a bit there, if I may. Please, please. Yeah. So actually, I think that papillary renal cancer and clear cell renal cancer are very, very distinct. And, and whereas I think that actually upper tract disease, when you do those RNA clustering analysis, you can find upper tract patients that are more closely linked to urothelial cancer patients. And there's more of a spectrum of colors of the rainbow um, within upper tract and bladder urothelial cancer um, with the acknowledging that overall there are subsets. And it comes back to the problems we have with, you know, these unsupervised analysis. And clearly the TCGA analysis is unhelpful in this respect because we need to find the biomarkers that predict response. There are some patients with upper tract disease who respond to immune checkpoint inhibitors with urothelial right. cancer because they have urothelial cancer and they have all the markers of urothelial cancer. Whereas I would actually more liken your story in clear cell renal cancer to the sarcomatoid population and the rest of the population, where within their subgroup, you've got the subgroup of super responders, whereas in urothelial cancer, we seem to have this subgroup of patients who seem to be more resistant, and that's because the underlying biology is more resistant. So I would look at it more as a black and white picture uh, rather than, uh, than the colours of the rainbow. Um, with uh if that's if that's at all helpful brian uh it's not but i don't um, think it was <laughs> i don't think so well yeah, but there's papillary patients who are responsive to immune therapy right but that like, would be for different reasons from clear cell renal cancer in the well, same way as there are in the same in know. the same way as there are breast cancer that. patients in the same way there are breast cancer there are patients that are responsive to immune therapy i suspect there's more relate i suspect there's you know as much similarities between papillary renal cancer um, that respond to immune therapy breast cancer patients that respond to immune triple negative breast cancer that. well you don't know it's not the other way <laughs> that's the point I'm trying how did to we make. get on this topic it's supposed to be an AUA recap we need to get guests on the show as a matter of <laughs> urgency I'm, I'm going to text somebody to see if they can join us 
Anyway, well, Matt presented that data on Checkmate, you know, to your point. So we're still waiting for overall survival. I don't know. I, I know it's not at ASCO. You know, haven't seen the titles, but, uh, I, you know, maybe ESMO or something. So two bits of feedback. The first is I got some feedback from the Belgium urology group. I was in Brussels on um, Saturday, um, on Friday night, and the Belgium urology group um, were very positive about some of our, some of our podcasts, Brian, but apparently I talk too quickly. Um, yeah, that, that's number one. And then the other bit of feedback I got was from the recent ODAC um, podcast. Okay. And I got two bits of feedback on that. The first was that the method of CTD analysis, we talked about Garden 360, but apparently it was foundation that was used. It was foundation, um, yeah. Yes, and Anto, I apologise for that. That's the first thing. And then uh, the second piece is that a number of people well, two people I've spoken to have come back and said that actually by the FDH moving the goalposts to allowing analysis of data sets in their interpretation, rather than the predefined and agreed data sets, that we sh that should be a two way street and we should it should be easier for investigators to speak to the FDA and look at more open analysis. Um, um, from both perspectives. And I know at the moment, both the EMA and the FDA are very black and white. We're not interested. It's very hard to be interested in that. We need to see a positive trial. But if you have a positive trial and we don't like the design, we reserve the right to change things. And that's a debate which I think will go on. Yeah. I mean, generally, you know, a positive subset can't rescue a negative trial. <clears throat> and I guess what you're saying is the comment is that maybe, maybe that'll change a little bit if it's something dramatic, right? Yeah, I'm not saying. Yeah, it is. But I'm not sure how I feel about it because there'll always be a positive I... subset within a trial because of type one error. So it, it's a com it's a complicated issue. But there are people who I've spoken to who said, if we're going to move the goalposts, we need to have a more open discussion. And I don't think that's unreasonable. I, I don't think it's unreasonable. I don't think it'll change. I, you know, I don't see that change coming, you know, and there's precedent before, as we talked about on that podcast for you know, restricting based on subset, you know, there's ample precedent for that. So I, I don't see it going in the other way, but I, but I take the comment and, you know, maybe over time that'll happen. Well, Brian, this has been terrific, but let's not do it again. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think we've got the value here. Very soon. All right. Cheers. Bye -bye.